Luxury is meant to be livable. Discover the new leather collection at Ashley with premium quality leather sofas, recliners, and more, all built to last. No matter how many spills, scuffs, or pet-related mishaps come its way, the leather collection at Ashley is made with the durability you need for the whole family. Shop the new leather collection at Ashley and find chairs starting at $499.99 and sofas at $599.99. Ashley, for the love of home. The Supreme Court was designed to be above the fray, but right now, are the nine justices living up to that promise? On More Perfect, host Julia Longoria brings the highest court in the land down to earth. You'll meet people on all sides of crucial cases and explore history that explains how we got here. More Perfect from WNYC Studios. Listen wherever you get your podcasts. Mr. Chief Justice, may it please the court. It's an old joke, but when an argued man argues against two beautiful ladies like this, they're going to have the last word. She spoke. Not elegantly, but with unmistakable clarity, she said, I ask no favor for my sex. All I ask of our brethren is that they take their feet off our necks. And welcome to a very special live show of Strict Scrutiny, your podcast about the Supreme Court and the legal culture that surrounds it. I'm Melissa Murray. I'm Leah Littman. And I'm Kate Shaw. And um, some guy named Donald Trump was supposed to be here, but <laughs> he busy. Um, <laughs> then as a backup, Crooked put us in touch with this guy, Jack Smith. Um, but he's also going through some things uh, because, yes, the twice impeached former president and now is now a twice indicted former president. So Donald Trump was indicted once again, this time in federal court on charges related to classified documents that he improperly retained. We haven't yet seen the indictment, but it's been reported that the charges include conspiracy to obstruct justice, violation of the Espionage Act. Basically, um, area man has run into some trouble with the law. <laughs> We're not going to spend a lot of time on Donald Trump because, frankly, he's exhausting and he doesn't really deserve our time. And also because it's been a really big week for the rule of law and we really want to dig into it. So, first of all, we are coming to you live today from Howard University Law School in Washington, D.C. And I will say, when we decided to have our first D.C. live show, there were so many choices because, let's face it, D.C. is lousy with lawyers. <laughs> lousy with law schools. But we knew immediately that our first DC show had to be here at Howard Law School, the Mecca, the hilltop, the place that has spawned so many amazing civil rights pioneers. And we are so grateful to the Howard University Law School community and Dean Danielle Holly Walker for their kind hospitality and for welcoming us here today. Thank you so much. So as listeners will know, normally on this podcast, we spend a lot of time talking about the Supreme Court, but we are typically doing it at a relatively safe distance from the place. Though uh, perhaps speaking only for myself, I would personally be willing to take one for the team and follow the justices abroad when they go to Italy for their cozy vacations styled as academic junkets, just to do a Fantastico live show in, say, Italy. 
Honestly, it would depend which justices we are talking about, at least to my mind. Now, Girls Trip with Sonia, Elena, and Katanji, that I think we would do. I don't think I would follow Neil Gorsuch anywhere, even on Harlan Crow's really luxe private jet. Um, but so back to D.C. for the moment. We actually don't know what the justices' plans are because, frankly, those nine still have some work to do here. There are around 23 opinions left to announce this term and probably only about two weeks in which to do it. So you better work, bitch. Um, <laughs> over at One First Street, they are certainly polishing up those drafts, and we want to be clear, it's probably not going to be good. Uh, the question to our minds is just how bad. Well, it's not just us saying that it's going to be bad. I mean, Mother Nature is literally saying it's going to be bad. <laughs> there is a literal toxic cloud hanging over the East Coast, which feels like Mother Nature's way of saying it's a metaphor, right? Am I right? Yeah, so the toxic cloud, in our view, is likely the Supreme Court and what they're going to do over the next two weeks. And the East Coast is basically all of democracy. So buckle up, folks. It's going to be great. Uh, the literal toxic cloud is especially appropriate because we're almost one year from the Supreme Court's decision that kneecapped the Clean Air Act in June um, in West Virginia versus EPA. So a week after the court overruled Roe, the court made it harder to address climate change and made it easier for polluters to pollute the atmosphere. And the Clean Air Act, the statute that the court hobbled in that case, was literally enacted on the heels of smog overwhelming New York City. So it's almost like Mother Nature is both protesting the court and crying out that we still need the Clean Air Act. So in light of all of this, this literal, physical, toxic cloud, as well as the toxic cloud of the court, there's an understandable instinct to stay far, far away from SCOTUS. But not us. We don't run from danger, no. <laughs> we walk right up and say, hey, danger, we're here. And that's what we've done. We took this opportunity to come directly to the courts play in their faces, in their backyards, and we decided to do that here at Howard Law School, um, again, because of the incredible work that Howard has done over the years supporting and bolstering civil rights in this country. So we had previously done an episode with the incomparable Tiffany Wright and talked about the launch of the Civil and Human Rights Clinic here at Howard. That clinic filed a powerful brief in Dobbs about the history of abortion restrictions and the burdens that abortion bans disproportionately impose on black women. And we have been seeing those enormous burdens on people, uh, women's lives every day since the court overruled Roe. And of course, most people in this room do not need a reminding of this, but for our listeners at home, it does bear emphasizing that Howard has long been in the business of training leaders who have been at the forefront of using the law to seek racial justice, to build a functioning and inclusive democracy, who understand the fundamental linkage between those two projects. Um, so it is a real thrill for us to be here. We have been fangirling out on the class portraits in the hallways. We've been taking <laughs> pictures of ourselves, prepping in the Polly Murray conference room. It is an absolute delight for us to be here. We also want to give a real shout out to Dean Danielle Holly Walker, who made this possible. Um, and we should note, this is something of a swan song for Dean Holly Walker, who is going to be leaving Howard Law this June to assume the presidency of Mount Holyoke College, the first black woman in the history of that college to have the post. She's been an early and avid supporter of this podcast and all of us, and we commend her remarkable tenure here at Howard Law School, and we wish her well in her new post, Mount Holyoke is so lucky to have her. And again, we are so grateful for her hospitality and we're so grateful for the work that she and her team and our team at Crooked did to bring all of this together. So thank you. We are also delighted to be joined on stage here at Howard by Janae Nelson. 
Janae is the president and director counsel of the NAACP Legal Defense Fund. Prior to assuming her current position, uh, Nelson was LDF's associate director counsel and a member of LDF's litigation and policy teams where she was a lead counsel in a successful federal challenge to Texas's voter ID law, among other cases. And prior to joining LDF, um, she was a law professor and associate dean at St. John's University School of Law. And she is also a repeat strict scrutiny guest. So welcome back to the show, Janae. I am so delighted to be here. Thank you. So here is a quick overview of today's show. We are going to start with the court's latest batch of opinions. We are then going to highlight some cases out of the federal trial courts, and we will end with some court culture. But first up, opinions. And boy, did we get a banger from the court on Thursday in Allen versus Milligan. And of course, that was the huge case involving Section 2 of the Voting Rights Act. The question in this case was whether an Alabama congressional map that created just one majority black district out of seven in a state that is 27% black, violated Section 2 of the Voting Rights Act, which prohibits voting standards or practices or procedures that result in, quote, a denial or abridgment of the right of any citizen of the United States to vote on account of race or color, end quote. Now, in a move that surprised a lot of people, including me. And me. Lots of surprises. Not me. Not me. (laughs) (laughs) We're going to get to that. I mean, for some of us who don't give him the benefit of the doubt, Chief Justice John Roberts, who we know as a longtime fan of the Voting Rights Act and voting rights more generally, wrote the majority opinion in this case for five justices, himself, the three Democratic appointees, and perhaps inexplicably, Justice Kavanaugh. So the majority agreed that the map violated Section 2 of the VRA, and Roberts described the effort by Alabama in the case as an attempt to, quote, remake our Section 2 jurisprudence anew. Meow. Bowl of milk, table two. (laughs) And Roberts strongly rejected that effort, writing, we see no reason to disturb the district court's careful factual findings, nor is there a basis to upset the district court's legal conclusion. The court faithfully applied our precedents and correctly determined that under existing law, HB1, that's the previous map, violated Section 2. Okay, so that's the bottom line. There is a lot more to say, so let's get right to it. And just to frame things, you know, a unanimous three-judge panel where two of the judges were Trump appointees found that Alabama's maps illegally diluted the votes of black Alabamians in violation of the Voting Rights Act because Alabama drew one district where black voters could elect the candidate of their choice rather than keeping black voters in the black belt together in a second district where they could also elect the candidate of their choice. And faced with a judicial order directing them to engage in the project of multiracial democracy, Alabama went up to the Supreme Court asking for a pass from that whole multiracial democracy thing. We're going to get back to that hall pass in a minute. But hall pass minute. from democracy uh, could be a tagline for this court. Um, but we will talk about what the court did here and also react to it. Okay, so Janae, can we ask you to start with what are, in your view, the most important takeaways from the opinion? And would love to hear about why you actually weren't surprised the way a lot of us were. <laughs> Absolutely. But first, I just have to say that I can't think of a better place to be in conversation about this victory and 
three people to be in conversation with about it than the Strict Scrutiny podcast hosts, Leah, Kate, and Melissa. So I'm just delighted to be here at Howard University School of Law, where Thurgood Marshall, the founder of the Legal Defense Fund, graduated in 1933. So this feels like a wonderful homecoming and the appropriate place to celebrate what I think is a landmark civil rights decision by the Supreme Court. So the key takeaways, um, and then we'll get to the idea of a surprise. So this case, in so many ways, um, first and foremost, is a vindication of the voting rights of black voters, not only in Alabama, but across the country, because this holding reverberates in cases that are currently pending before the court, cases that are pending in district courts that LDF and other civil rights groups are litigating, and cases yet to be brought where there are potential majority-minority districts to be drawn. So the potential reverberations are, are, are vast. So that's number one. Number two, this is a validation of Section 2 of the Voting Rights Act. And Section 2, as many of you may know, has been the only tool that has done any really robust work in the past decade since Section 5 of the Voting Rights Act was struck down in an opinion authored by Chief Justice Roberts uh, 10 years ago this month, Shelby County versus Holder. And that case invalidated a provision that would have prevented this map in Alabama from going into effect in the first place. It was a preclearance provision which required the federal government to review voting changes in states with a history of discrimination. And we know Alabama has a very robust history of racial discrimination. And this congressional map would have never gotten through Section 5 preclearance. So here we are enforcing Section 2, but Section 2 has been withered in many ways over the past decade as well. And there was great concern about whether it would be enforced robustly in in this, what I considered a very slam dunk textbook case of racial gerrymandering. And so the court validated Section 2, said it was still a robust tool, that it is completely constitutional which I think is a real win given uh, the number of questions swirling around it. And it also validated, it, it, it's you know swept away the doubts around whether you can bring a private action under the Voting Rights Act um, and resolved a number of issues around the technical application of the jingles requirements, et cetera. I would say the final thing is that this opens up the door to reexamine the possibilities of equal electoral opportunity as we see a changing demographic in our electorate. The U.S. is on track to be a majority people of color nation by as early as 2040, and this decision could not come any sooner to encourage more fair maps to allow our democracy to function as it should. So there are many wins, and I'm happy to dissect the opinion further and get into the surprise element. Great. So in terms of reaffirming existing doctrine, making clear that if faithfully applied, this does suggest that Section 2 will be a potent tool for combating 
discrimination in map drawing and in other aspects of the voting process. Um, it also, just to make quite concrete in terms of the on-the-ground impact of this decision, it seems quite clear Alabama has to create a second majority black district. That is very likely going to be true in the immediate aftermath of this case of several other states, Georgia, Louisiana. There's possibility of impact in the maps in North Carolina, possibly Texas. So the on-the-ground consequences will be immediate um, in, in terms of including black voters in democracy and fully in the political process. Um, in terms of the team at LDF that litigated this case, we, we can't we cannot miss the opportunity to pile on some praise, right, to other previous strict scrutiny guests, Duell Ross and LDF in general, right, for lawyering the heck out of this case. I have to say, it feels like if you come on strict scrutiny, you win in the Supreme Court. <laughs> <laughs> um, Causation or correlation? I don't know. Definitely one of the two. Yeah. So uh, we also wanted to extend congratulations to the ACLU, who was also very involved in mounting this challenge. Um, you know, this team, I think, truly saved this part of the Voting Rights Act and in doing so safeguarded multiracial democracy and the ability of voters of color to receive representation going forward. We should also shout out other lawyers involved in the case. Abakana of the Elias Law Group also argued, as did Solicitor General Elizabeth Prelogger. Both were terrific, arguing on behalf of plaintiffs and the federal government in support of the lower court's opinion. Strict Scrutiny is brought to you by Americans United for Separation of Church and State. Missouri legislators said the quiet part out loud with their total abortion ban. Quote, Almighty God is the author of life, end quote. They also said, quote, God doesn't give us a choice in this area. He is the creator of life. Plus, quote, from the biblical side of it, life does occur at the point of conception, end quote. Religious extremists are forcing all of us to live by their beliefs, as in the Alabama IVF case. Americans United for Separation of Church and State exists to stop this kind of abuse. On the eve of the 50th anniversary of Roe, Americans United and their allies sued Missouri, representing 14 clergy from seven different denominations. AU's lawsuit challenges Missouri's abortion bans as a violation of the separation of church and state. AU's guiding light is freedom without favor, equality without exception. AU works with partners on all sides of the aisle, of all religions and none, to ensure the wall between church and state stands strong for all. Keep up with this ongoing case at au.org. With my busy life, I use shipped same-day delivery to keep up. When I need a jar of extra creamy peanut butter delivered, I know my personal shopper Amber will come through. And if it's not on the shelf, she asks them to check the bag. Shipped. Delight in every delivery. Learn more at shipped.com. So, Janae, one of the things that I think was really important in this decision is that the court gives some much-needed guidance in how to litigate and how judges should review claims of vote dilution. So, vote dilution, again, are instances where legislatures have drawn districts in ways that reduce the minority voters' ability to obtain political power and to elect the candidates of their choice. So, in what ways has the court signaled how these cases should be litigated and how reviewing courts should address these claims of vote dilution? Well, I think the court did a lot of work by saying what not to do and by rejecting a number of the arguments that the state of Alabama put forth, very specious arguments. And in fact, Chief Justice Roberts said quite clearly that to the extent that the state of Alabama was suggesting that you need a race-conscious approach 
to, uh, or race neutral approach, I should say, to redistricting, that that is fully rejected by section two. And I really want to credit Justice Katanji Brown Jackson for dissecting that issue during oral argument. And I think laying the foundation for that part of the, the opinion. Uh, but the court also said that when we're thinking about um, simulations, which is a real challenge as we start to uh, continue to use more technology in the process of redistricting. The process of simulations allows you to produce thousands of maps on a computer. Uh, and the state of Alabama wanted to use evidence of simulations to suggest that uh, there are many configurations for districts and therefore the 11 maps that we put forward in the case that showed that a majority minority district could be drawn were somehow diluted by the fact that there were so many other permutations. And the court really rejected the reliance on simulations, which is very important as we move forward in thinking about redistricting other areas. The court also made very clear that proportionality is, as the, as the Voting Rights Act says in its text, not a requirement. It's not required that just because 27% of Alabama's population is black, one in four people, that you necessarily have to have a proportionate representation in your congressional delegation. But what you do have to have under the Voting Rights Act is an opportunity, an equal opportunity to elect. And that is what the court reinforced in Section 2. So in many ways, it clarified existing law. It, it, it really reaffirmed principles that we already knew. And it rejected those that the state of Alabama attempted to use to sully the Voting Rights Act and to make Section 2 inoperable. Yeah, another important clarification the court offered was that um, in circumstances where legislatures adhere to earlier drawn maps, that adherence does yes. not necessarily insulate them from future Section 2 claims. And again, I think that speaks to the dynamism of the landscape. Like the population is changing and that's right. the state has to also adapt and update its maps to reflect that. So again, the court made that really clear too. We are in a dynamic environment. Um, with all of that in mind, let's step back a little and maybe think about what this decision, which as everyone has said, was incredibly surprising, especially for people who follow the court closely. What does this surprise victory for voting rights from noted liberal squish John Roberts <laughs> tell us about this court and the moment it's in and its relationship with the public? I think it tells you that the court has not fully abandoned stare decisis, as many of us might have thought uh, at the end. Of I feel targeted. <laughs> <laughs> as many of us may have thought at the end of, of last term. Um, it, it creates a floor. Right? It's a very low bar, but it is the a bar is in hell. It is a bar. <laughs> it's a bar nonetheless. Um, and, and, and I think I think it really is a recognition of at least some members of the court, namely uh, Chief Justice Roberts and Justice Kavanaugh, recognizing that our democracy simply could not withstand. Uh, a blow to Section 2 of the Voting Rights Act that, A, is not supported by 40 years of precedent and law, and B, would wreak havoc on our increasingly multiracial, multiethnic democracy. If you continue to isolate political power in the way that 
uh, the state of Alabama was attempting to do. And as you point out, Kate, the state of Louisiana, we've got Florida, we've got South Carolina, we've got so many states we can name, Arkansas as well, um, and others, North Carolina. Um, you, you really have no electoral process through which to hear the voices of this increasingly diverse electorate. And then you force people into other uh, more dystopian choices that I don't think the court wants to be the author of that story. Speaking of dystopian choices, um, <laughs> I think one of the reasons why I found this decision so surprising is because it's not the first time the court had dealt with this challenge. And in fact, in February 2022, this case came before the court on the shadow docket. As many people will recall, black voters in Alabama, represented by LDF and the ACLU, challenged uh, the maps under Section 2 of the Voting Rights Act. The three-judge panel agreed with them that the maps were unlawful. Then Alabama appealed that to the United States Supreme Court on the shadow docket, and it requested a stay of the lower court decision that had instructed Alabama to redraw the map in advance of the 2022 midterm election. And a five to four majority of the court in an unexplained shadow docket decision, a five to four majority that included now liberal squish Brett Kavanaugh, stayed the lower court's decision. And it allowed that map to be used in the 2022 midterm election. They followed that banger up with a similar decision involving a Louisiana districting map. And there was also a lower court in Georgia that allowed maps to be, unlawful maps to be used on the ground that they were following guidance from the Supreme Court. And so I think it is not an understatement to say that the court's actions on the shadow docket in 2022 completely distorted the electoral landscape in the midterm election and possibly gave the Republicans control of the House of Representatives. So uh, a couple of things. One, you are 100% correct about- Say it again. The <laughs> The impact of- Melissa's show. gonna make this our new intro yes. for the show. <laughs> just so you know. <laughs> this is gonna be on a loop on the internet. Just yeah. get ready. Um, no. Tell my husband's gonna wake up every morning. <laughs> But you are 100% correct that these decisions on the shadow docket, the decision to stay these lower court decisions, one in Louisiana involving uh, three Republican appointees to the court and two Trump appointees in the Alabama case. And I only note that uh, we are a nonpartisan organization. I, I note that just to emphasize that this is actually not political, that this has everything to do with a fair application and objective application of the law, regardless of any political affiliation. And so, yes, our current Congress is actually there. The composition is a result of racially discriminatory maps. That means the entire country is affected by the racial discrimination that happened in these states. So this is not an Alabama issue. It's not a Louisiana issue. This is a national concern. So you're right. So the question I think that you're teasing here is why did Chief Justice Roberts grant the stay along with Kavanaugh and then do this? Well, it was Kavanaugh who changed, changed, right? The yes. chief wouldn't have granted the stay. He yeah. wrote this yes, like, weird correct. opinion yeah, right. that was like, well, I wouldn't grant the stay because granting the stay would require me to change the law, but I am changing the law curious. curious. Yeah. Um, uh, so I'm yes. open to yes. the possibility of doing it after an argument. Right. But then he said, no, I'm not going to do it. And then Justice Kavanaugh, who had granted the stay, 
then walked it back and you know, said, nope, 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 we're, we are going to keep the law as it is, reaffirm these existing principles, and... And, and say, full-throatedly, these maps are unlawful yeah. today. Yeah, so, so June 8th. Right. If that was the case, why weren't they similarly unlawful in February 2022? So I do think that going into this case, the fact that the court had previously allowed the map to be used, obviously John Roberts' history, both as a young lawyer in the Justice Department and as a justice, as the author of Shelby County, and as someone who has seemed to demonstrate real hostility to the Voting Rights Act and to voting rights more broadly, that he would author this opinion and that Kavanaugh would come over for most of it, I think we're all still trying to puzzle our way through. So you talked about some of the reasons that you think might explain all this. But so in you were going in, you were expecting this? So let me say one word, because I do think it's important for people to understand the difference between what was at play in the stay and what happened on, mm -hmm. on the merits. So during the stay, the reason for granting this day was a particular principle called Purcell, uh, the suggestion that if a voting change is going to happen too close in time to an election, it shouldn't happen. We should just let everything ride out, lawful or not, just let it ride out and then deal with the after effects later. So that is what happened. That's the principle that, that drove this. Fully disagree with the application here. We filed that lawsuit as soon as one could possibly file a lawsuit after the drinking plans were uh, passed by the Alabama state legislature. We got a decision in January of, of 2022, and nonetheless, the court said that this was too close in time to the November election. So, but, fully uh, disagree. Ma math time. That's nine months. A, a full gestation <laughs> you period. You can have yes. a baby. <laughs> yes, correct. If correct. you can have a baby because you can't have an abortion, why can't you figure this out in nine months? The math is not math. You're supposed to put the challenge in a drop box and then <laughs> wait for it to materialize two years later. Ladies Safe Haven votes. Yes. <laughs> yes. So I say this only to say that there was ostensibly some legal cover to that decision, whereas there's no legal cover for the decision that the state of Alabama wanted in the merits case, right? So, so there's a distinction there. But to the element of surprise, so okay, did I think that we were absolutely going to win? Of course not. There's no way that anyone could be sober-minded before this court and think that you have any chance of a guaranteed win. But did I believe that if there was any case to push this court to do the right thing, that it would be this case? because the facts were so egregious, because our record was so strong, because our advocates were so on point? Absolutely. And that's what made me believe that there was a possibility for this to happen. And I'm very thankful that it turned out to be correct. So are we. Yeah. Uh, so I wanted to kind of um, add two additional, I think, semi-related explanations for, you know, why it's not totally surprising or what may have happened here. You know, one is that I guess my intuition is another thing that happened in between the stay and the merits decision is there has been a lot of criticism and public pressure on the court and the court's plummeting approval ratings. And these things matter in my view, like public outcry about the court's radicalism, right, in granting the stay and what was at stake in this case with the legal theories, that matters. And the court knows, I think, they're going to be spending down some capital in future cases this term. And when Kate says, you know, LDF, ACLU, other groups lawyered the heck out of this case, like, that's part of what I 
think is involved in lawyering the heck out of cases right now is speaking to the public about what the arguments in a case mean and how there was a risk that the court would embrace them and what would happen if they did. You know, the justices and their clerks, they read this stuff. They can tell how people react to them and their decisions. And I don't frankly think the chief wanted op-eds that said a decade after Shelby County, the chief justice kills like the other section of the Voting Rights Act. Especially not when in Shelby County, yeah. Chief Justice Roberts said, but you have Section 2. Yep. So so in many ways, <laughs> and also, I mean, you can point to Dobbs as well. If you say, well, if you want a, a right to abortion, if you want, you know, to weigh in on reproductive rights, you can vote that way. But we're taking away your ability to elect candidates in Congress who can represent your interests. It's, it's so thoroughly hypocritical that I think this was part of validating some of the offerings that he made, uh, whether they be legitimate and, and truly, um, you know, truly heartfelt or not, but it really would undermine every other argument he makes if he limited the right to vote in this way. I also think there's something about the particular psychology of Brett Kavanaugh here. And something you said, Janae, reminded me of an earlier decision, I think from 2019, Flowers versus early. Mississippi, which is a Batson challenge. Um, and again, that was a case where Brett Kavanaugh in the majority ruled that the prosecutors had violated a black defendant's right to a fair jury trial. And again, the facts were so egregious, mm -hmm. like, I mean, really, really egregious. It, it just may be the case that for Brett Kavanaugh, a father of daughters and <laughs> the first man to have an all-female chambers, Really egregious racism is, in fact, racist. Civil rights icon, Brett Kavanaugh. Um, <laughs> the strongest black woman on the court. <laughs> That's Sam Alito. Come on. But I do also want to emphasize something you were also saying, Janae, which is like this decision to me is also a reaffirmation of the idea that I truly believe in the darkest of times that law and lawyers can sometimes matter. Like we've said, right? Like, I mean, right, I know, I know, right? Like sometimes it's not just, it, you know, it's not just the fact that like LDF and ACLU and, you know, the SG and the Elias group, like lawyers were great. It's also how aggressive and outlandish and absurd Alabama's arguments were. Like they were sloppy and they were slapdash. Like this was the oral argument when the justices were pressing Alabama, like, what exactly is your theory and in what universe does it possibly make sense? There was one lawyer here who did an A-plus job, in addition to Duell Ross. Um, she doesn't get the billing that she deserves for being a top lawyer here, but that lawyer was actually the court's newest justice, Justice Jackson, who started... Justice Jackson started her maiden term on this court. She came out with just a banger of a term. She was not like sitting back on, as a wallflower. She came to play. And she started out in this case by reaching into her purse and pulling out a CVS style receipt, <laughs> which she read out loud to her colleagues about the origins of the Voting Rights Act and the Reconstruction Congress's efforts to try and include newly freed African-Americans in the project of democracy. And the fact that on the heels of slavery, 
these people understood that race-conscious measures might, in fact, be necessary to include these individuals in the project of democracy. And her participation in this oral argument, I think, was absolutely transformative. So let's hear a clip of that. I am so, so glad uh, for Justice Barrett's clarification, because I had the same thought about what you were arguing, and I'm glad that you clarified um, that your core point is that the Jingles test has to have a race-neutral baseline or that the the first uh, step has to be race-neutral. And and what I guess I'm a little confused about in light of that argument is why, um, given our normal assessment of the Constitution, um, why is it that you think that there's a 14th Amendment problem? And let me just clarify what I mean by that. Um, I don't think we can assume that just because race is taken into account that that necessarily creates an equal protection problem because I understood that we looked at the history and traditions of the Constitution, at what the framers and the founders thought about. And when I drilled down to that level of analysis, it became clear to me that the framers themselves adopted uh, the Equal Protection Clause, the 14th Amendment, the 15th Amendment in a race-conscious way that they were, in fact, trying to ensure that people who had been discriminated against, the freedmen, um, in, during the Reconstruction period, uh, were actually uh, 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 brought equal to everyone else in the society. So I looked at the uh, report that was submitted by the Joint Committee on Reconstruction, which drafted the 14th Amendment, Um, And that report says that the entire point of the amendment was to secure rights of the freed former slaves. The legislator who introduced that amendment said that, quote, unless the Constitution should restrain them, those states will all, I fear, keep up this discrimination and crush to death the hated freedmen. That's not not a race-neutral or race-blind idea. And also think about how Justice Jackson and Justice Keegan were hammering the Alabama lawyer on how Alabama was trying to make the Voting Rights Act of all things race blind, like the famously race neutral Voting Rights Act um, and transform vote dilution into an intense standard, which it most certainly is not. And to our minds, it really is important to be able to recognize that, you know, all of this together evaded the immediate destruction of what remains of the Voting Rights Act and the tools it provides to facilitate multiracial democracy. And there were some really important principles embedded within this Roberts opinion. Roberts says voting is fundamental. I am not sure Roberts in his own voice has ever written that sentence in a judicial opinion before. He's probably at home right now in the fetal position. (laughs) (laughs) But he can't take it back. It's there. And... That's what I what I mean when I say this is you know this is a section two vote dilution case, but the principle should transcend this particular context. He talks about the importance of deferring to Congress's choices here, right? This particular version, not subpoena choices, but other choices. <laughs> <laughs> you, you take what you can get with this court, but but it, it is you know Congress made a choice when it passed the Voting Rights Act and when it amended the Voting Rights Act to correct the court's earlier crabbed vision of section two, which would have only prohibited intentional discrimination. Congress corrected that, said no. The importance, back to stare decisis, which Janae, you mentioned earlier, the importance of not just junking tons of precedents, that too is an important 
through line in this case. Um, and then, again, I can't believe I'm saying this sentence, but John Roberts says we can't blind ourselves to the consideration of race. I think he, he wrote that. Yes. <laughs> um, and he if wrote the this. US <laughs> reports are to be believed, like it's still up on the Supreme Court's website. And so, both for this case and for hopefully the court's future encounters with cases involving democracy, all of this should really matter. And this is from the man who said that efforts to bring greater diversity and integration to schools and uh, in the area of redistricting in a case, what, back in 2006 or seven, said that this is a sordid business, this divvying up by race. Uh, and this man is now recognizing, especially now in a climate where the truth of the history and the ongoing effects of racial discrimination is being so contested in the very states that we're talking about. And, and I'd be remiss if I didn't mention something that he wrote about the black belt. You know, we all know the history of the black belt. And, and Chief Justice Roberts actually identified the black belt as a community with a high proportion of similarly situated black voters who share a lineal connection to, quote, the many enslaved people who were brought there to work in the antebellum period. He recognizes that history. I mean, it's a little bit sanitized, I would say. I mean, they, they weren't just brought here to work. They immigrated. This was a little bit different than that. But, but just that recognition and the rejection of um, this idea that there is some community of interest of, of white folks who share some French colonial ancestry is, is actually important. <laughs> Fantastique, I think, is what you want to say. Yes. So if that's right, that has to mean that it's not just law that's doing the work here because those principles, they all sound right to me. Um, they don't necessarily sound like the principles that Justice Kavanaugh and the Chief Justice have always followed in other cases. And I guess I think no one should let this court's opinion and the fact that they ruled for, you know, the black voters um, here by reaffirming, you know, existing law undercut the work of the people who put themselves out there to draw attention to this case and the risks that it posed and in the process, I think, helped to make this case happen. Like, we shouldn't make the mistake of thinking that this result was inevitable or that that kind of work won't be necessary the next time around. Yeah, so we should definitely shout out folks like Evan Milligan, who was at the forefront of this. Um, and again, Joel Ross, who had such a masterful command of this case at oral argument. Um, but as is my want, I have been a bit of a turd in the punch bowl on this case for the last couple of days. And mostly it's about the media's coverage of this case and the way it has been presented as a cause for celebration or victory. And I just want to take a beat on this. And again, I do think this is a victory for civil rights and for voting rights. And yes, voters and multiracial democracy won here. But I don't think we can let up on this court. And I don't think that we can give this court credit for issuing a victory that was ours in the first place. Steve Vladek and I wrote a piece in the Washington Post this morning that was really two tweet threads that we brought together. <laughs> when two tweet threads meet cute, they, they make an op-ed. And, and the point is, like, there's context here. There's Shelby County versus Holder when the court eviscerated preclearance which would have stopped this map from going into effect in the first instance. There's Brnovich in 2021, where this court hobbled Section 2. There's the shadow docket decisions that allowed these maps to go into effect and may have actually affected electoral outcomes in this country. And so 
yes, this is a victory, but I don't think that we should celebrate this court finally doing the right thing when they could have done the right thing in February 2022 or in July of 2021 or in June of 2013. And we have to stay on their necks and we can do both. And, you know, Sherilyn Eiffel came at me a little bit and that's fine. Like, I love Sherilyn Eiffel. If Sherilyn Eiffel told me to go to hell, I'd put on flame retardant pajamas and I would go. <laughs> I would go. Like, it is a victory, and we should celebrate LDF, Duel, the ACLU, but we need to stay on this court's neck. If, like, anything is proven by this, it's staying on their necks may have helped us get here. Well, I couldn't agree more. And what I will say is, you, if I had a dollar for everyone who said we should not have brought this case, that this case was dead on arrival. Um, I'd be a rich woman. And I think that is staying on the court's neck. So yeah. there's no question that that is happening, and there's no question that this case did that. What I take issue with is the idea that people can feign surprise over this and say, oh, my God, this was shocking. This was so unexpected, but yet this wasn't a win. That is thoroughly inconsistent to say in one breath, you were surprised, but this is somehow not a win. If we did not think that the court would produce this justified result when they actually produced it, how is that not a win for our democracy? And let me say this, I distinguish wins from progress. Yes, this validated the status quo. This reinforced critical principles for our democracy. This was a reaffirmation of stare decisis. We talked about the many ways that this clarified a number of issues and, importantly, which we haven't really teased out, this was a clear validation of disparate impact and effects tests that will have implications well beyond Section 2 of the Voting Rights Act into Title VII, into the Fair Housing Act, into so many other civil rights laws. So to suggest that this is not a win is something that I think fails to take into account the full context in which this decision was made and also the real world impact that it has the potential to have. So we are in an agreement that this is not progress. This is not a radical transformation of the Voting Rights Act, but it is an absolute unequivocal win for democracy in countless ways. And we could have other victories for democracy. This is a victory for democracy, and it would be even better if it were complemented by maybe a court that was more expansive in its understanding of voting rights, but more importantly, if it were complemented by a Congress that could do more to bolster the VRA as it had done in the past. That's right. And fortunately, it's, it, what will complement this decision are the state VRAs that are being passed, one that the Connecticut state legislature just passed earlier this week as the sixth state to enact the John R. Lewis Voting Rights Act at a state level. And it now, you now have a Supreme Court decision that makes racial gerrymandering like what happened in Alabama crystal clear for purposes of preclearance in those states. And as more states begin to enact these voting rights acts, then we will see greater progress on the state level. But we should, again, not forget the fact that this decision itself may enable a new Congress 
to a, re a newly composed Congress to actually enact the federal legislation that we need, like the John R. Lewis Voting Rights Act and the Freedom to Vote Act. Yeah, and the, the state the state voting rights act I think acts are a very important development, but I think conspicuously haven't been enacted in any of the states in which they are the most needed, and that I think is why a federal solution is so critical. So you know we've talked about Roberts, and we you know talked a little bit about Kavanaugh. Kavanaugh's switch, of course, from the shadow docket decision, which as Janae pointed out, was you know dealing with some different legal questions, but it's still a very conspicuous shift. And I'm really curious about how to understand Kavanaugh's vote here. So the influence of Chief Justice Roberts is one possibility. The influence of the newest justice, Ketanji Brown-Jackson, who's, you know, doesn't write separately in this case, but whose fingerprints really feel from the way she shaped the oral argument as though they are all over this opinion. Was Kagan advocating? I mean, again, Kavanaugh is the critical switch here. So I'm curious if folks have theories about what explains his move. I mean, one is he really wants those cocktail party invites um, and his I'm a good guy, I'm just unleashing terror on women concurrences weren't doing the trick. Um, so, you know, he had to actually back it up with some actions. And you know what? I'll, I'll do this. In light of his vote here, I will not call him dumb for at least one week. <laughs> Having said that, uh, I do need to point out some things about his concurrence. So he wrote a concurrence saying that stare decisis is really important in statutory cases, trying to distinguish, of course, Dobbs overruling Roe um, and maybe preserving a basis for the affirmative action cases coming up. This is something he's been on for a while, dating back to Ramos versus Louisiana. But in this Voting Rights Act case, he and the court relied on constitutional law precedent about what Congress can do under the Reconstruction Amendment, specifically in providing race-conscious remedies. And I did want to highlight some troubling passages at the end of his concurrence. There's this ominous passage where he suggests that the constitutionality of Voting Rights Act Section 2 safeguards against vote dilution might have an expiration point, you know, mm -hmm. similar to what Justice O'Connor had written about affirmative action and similar to what the Chief Justice had written in the opinion striking down Section 5 of the Voting Rights Act in Shelby County. So Justice Kavanaugh approvingly cites Justice Thomas's claim that, quote, the authority to conduct race-based redistricting cannot extend indefinitely into the future, but then says Alabama did not raise that temporal argument in this court, and I therefore would not consider it at this time. And I just worry this is giving me like Robert's fanboy energy, um, like the McKay Coppins profile of him. Should we take a beat on the Thomas dissent? Yeah, um, yeah, I definitely uh, want to talk about that. Okay. <laughs> okay. Um, I just want to make one point about it, and then I will hand you the mic, Melissa, which is that he keeps referring Thomas and his dissent to Robert's opinion as a plurality opinion, mm -hmm. which is just so petty. Like, Kavanaugh joins nearly the entire opinion. A plurality means you don't have five votes. That's not what this is, but Thomas insists on calling it that. I don't know if it reflects there was actually a vote shift at some point along the way, and the dissent wasn't updated to reflect that. But, but that was the one thing I wanted to flag. But, Melissa, the floor is yours. I do want to say more about Justice Thomas and his dissent because it was really something. So just again, for context, this is literally the second black person to sit on the United States Supreme Court. He is sitting in the seat formerly occupied by Thurgood Marshall, a graduate of this law school. And he wrote a 50, almost 50 page screed. It's almost twice the length of the majority opinion in which he contests a decision that vindicates the rights of black people to vote. Let that sit for a moment. Um, it is a love letter to the fiction of colorblind constitutionalism and a love letter to the prospect of showing intent 
to make out any kind of claim of race discrimination. And if you don't think this is just him limbering up and getting hydrated for his majority opinion in the affirmative action cases, you need Jesus. Like, <laughs> this is just a warm up. Yeah? Well, yeah. <laughs> you know, but it, it, let, let, let's see what, what side of the decision he'll be on. Um, you know, the other thing that struck me. <laughs> this is like hope we're feeling right now. <laughs> no, but, but what struck me was also the resurrection of the deeply offensive term by the deceased Justice Antonin Scalia that Section 2 is somehow a racial entitlement. Um, so it's it, it's just more evidence of a distancing from civil rights principles, from a full understanding of the Reconstruction Amendments and what they were purposed for, and and just an attack on, um, as you say, the voting rights of Black people in this country by this justice. Yeah. Um, if you haven't seen the Frontline documentary, watch it. It's oh my god, so much popcorn, so much tea. I was riveted. Like. <laughs> I mean, it's not often that Kate gives recommendations for TV, and so this was a banger. Good job. Good job. And actually, the second episode of the current slow burn season about Justice Thomas dropped a couple days ago, and whew, have you, if you haven't listened to that one yet, get the popcorn ready. It's wild. All right, but on that hopeful note that maybe Justice Thomas will be a liberal squish in the affirmative action cases, um, thank you for that, Janae. <laughs> I'm not sure that's exactly what I said. <laughs> I love your interpretation. Um, but thank you for joining us. Thank you so much for your leadership of LDF and the great work that you all did in conjunction with the ACLU in Merrill versus Milligan, Allen versus Milligan. Um, such an amazing victory. Congratulations to you all, and thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you. As a chef and a restaurant owner, I'm as meticulous about my cookware as I am about my ingredients. That's why I love Made In Cookware. Each pan they make isn't just designed to perform, it's crafted to last. As a mom, I love that I can trust Made In. It's made from the world's finest materials, so I can feel good about what I'm feeding my family. I'm Chef Brooke Williamson, and I use Made In Cookware. Shop chef-quality pots and pans at madeincookware.com. Luxury is meant to be livable. Discover the new leather collection at Ashley with premium quality leather sofas, recliners, and more, all built to last. No matter how many spills, scuffs, or pet-related mishaps come its way, the leather collection at Ashley is made with the durability you need for the whole family. Shop the new leather collection at Ashley and find chairs starting at $499.99 and sofas at $599.99. Ashley, for the love of home. For those of you who weren't here at the live show, Janae Nelson just left the stage to a standing ovation, which I imagine is exactly what happens when Justice Jackson comes into conference. <laughs> it should be. It should be. That's my president. Um, so uh, we got another surprising decision this week in Health and Hospital Corporation of Marion County versus Tulefsky. This decision was authored by Justice Jackson. So we talked up Justice Jackson's lone dissent in the labor case, Glacier Northwest, last week as a tour de force. And this one is two. She is making a play for the Taylor Swift of the Supreme Court in the face of challenges, namely all of the men's around her. She is just writing banger after banger. And I'm guessing she will have a lot of material in the next couple of weeks to continue this era. Um, 
All right. So, but back to Zalewski. So in this case, the state's argument basically sought to limit private plaintiffs' ability to sue to enforce laws if those laws were enacted under Congress's power under the Constitution's spending clause. So the state and some amici were basically saying here, yes, so Section 1983, which is the general federal civil rights statute, says that you can enforce laws, but when laws are passed under the spending power of Congress, those aren't laws, those are contracts. And if this sounds like it makes no sense, it, it really doesn't, but that was the theory. The statute makes no distinction between spending clause statutes and other statutes. Um, but again, not making a ton of sense doesn't always stop this court. And so we were really nervous going into this case. Well, we're nervous for a lot of reasons. Um, Congress passes a lot of laws. Apparently, they are also erstwhile contracts right. under the spending clause, which means that if the state's argument had been accepted here that these laws were actually contracts, it would have had huge consequences across a swath of different federal spending programs. And it would mean that the federal government could not bring cases for every violation of those programs and how they are carried out. It means that many of those laws would have basically gone unenforced or under-enforced. So again, this theory had enormous implications. Right, and the decision was somewhat surprising, or we were at least bracing for a potentially terrible result because over a series of earlier cases, the court had cut back on the enforcement of some spending clause statutes and some individual justices, although not the court, had floated the question that, you know, maybe spending clause statutes could never be enforced via the general civil rights statute. Which brings us back to Justice Jackson and her transformative participation in the oral argument in Tlefsky. Just to be really clear here, she gave a read, honey, about the history of Section 1983. Um, she made clear that Section 1983 was intended to address the inadequacy of state common law remedies and the inadequacy of state courts as venues for the protection of federal rights. So let's hear a snippet from her at oral argument. I don't understand your suggestion that an express cause of action, which I think we can all agree is what 1983 is, that says that you can sue to vindicate uh, individual rights that are created by the Constitution or laws of the United States. I, I don't understand why that carries with it common law that preceded it under circumstances in which you couldn't sue. So you, you seem to be suggesting that there isn't a, uh, th- this isn't a situation in which Congress was actually providing a cause of action where there wasn't one before. Right. Which, when you look at the actual history of 1983, that was precisely what Congress was doing. It was a part, it, 1983, of the Ku Klux Klan Act, where Congress had looked at the situation of states not giving forum, not giving a cause of action to people who were being terrorized, and instead of adopting and incorporating those principles and saying, here's this new law and we're going to incorporate the common law of excluding you from the court, in fact, Congress created the right in order to allow people to go to court. So while there might be situations in which we carry old soil into our interpretation, mm-hmm. I don't understand how you can interpret a an express grant of authority to go to court to enforce rights created by law 
consistent with the opposite situation at common law and say we have to limit the current right because in common law you didn't have that right. I just realized that the through line in both this case and the Voting Rights Act case is that in both cases, one party was asking the court to treat, you know, spending clause statutes and the Voting Rights Act as law-ish, right, rather than laws. And the court rejected that. It's weird. Um, Anyway, so this uh, spending clause argument was also the oral argument where Justice Kagan had mocked the lawyer who suggested that the court should narrow the ability to sue under the general civil rights statute by incorporating, of all things, the Supreme Court's Armed Career Criminal Act jurisprudence. Nice try, some geniuses. So this decision preserves the protections and rights contained in spending clause statutes, Medicaid, you know, health care, education, child care, elderly care, nursing. You know, this particular case involved um, the Federal Nursing Home Reform Act. And as such, you know, I think this is a huge civil rights and disability rights win. So in addition to Tlefsky, we also got an opinion in Dubin versus United States. Now, this decision narrows the federal identity theft statute and says that the use of another person's identity has to be integral to the crime in order to constitute identity theft. In this case, the defendant overcharged Medicare by something like $100, and in doing so, he misdescribed the services that were provided to another person, and that other person's name wasn't a key part of the crime. So that's the setup. And this decision is really part of a trend of the court narrowing the reach of federal criminal law. This was a unanimous opinion by Justice Sotomayor. Just side note, like how embarrassing is it for the federal government that they lost Sam Alito in a criminal case? (laughs) If that doesn't prompt some soul searching in U.S. attorney's offices, it's hard to know what will. (laughs) Uh, So Neil Gorsuch, who we like to refer to as our little stopped clock, He's very occasionally correct about something, um, had some righteous anger and ridicule directed at the government's theory in this case, and he couldn't help himself from really just this fantastico formulation of it. So he wrote, um, whoever among you is not an aggravated identity thief, let him cast the first stone. (laughs) Who thought it was a good idea to give this guy a Bible? He's got to prove he learned some things on those trips to Italy, Melissa. (laughs) So he listed a bunch of things that that would be identity theft under the government's theory, like overcharging someone on Venmo. Um, And he concludes with what I think he sort of intended as a mic drop moment. uh, And that was, the statute fails to provide even rudimentary notice of what it does and does not criminalize. We have a term for laws like that. We call them vague. Fantastico! (laughs) We call that fantastico. Um, He's so good. We also got an opinion in one of our favorite cases, Jack Daniels versus VIP Products. Yes. Everyone clap. Fan favorite. Fan favorite. We spent a lot of time discussing this case after the oral argument because both the facts and the oral argument were actually incredibly entertaining. Now, again, the bar is low for Supreme Court oral arguments, but if you like your dog jokes intermingled with scatological humor, this was the oral argument for you. So this case involved a line of dog toys called Bad Spaniels, and they look like a bottle of Jack Daniels, or made to look like Jack Daniels bottles, but rather than saying old number seven brand Tennessee sour mash whiskey, they say instead, the old number two on your Tennessee carpet. Get it? It's because dogs poop on your carpet. Okay. 
the Ninth Circuit found for the dog toy company, and this was pretty rough going for Jack Daniels. I'm not above a pun. Okay. <laughs> Unfortunately, the opinion itself was way less funny than the facts of the case or the oral argument. So it we happens. will summarize it briefly. It um, the court vacates and remands, directs the courts, the lower courts, to use a different legal test to assess the claims on infringement. The court concludes that the only relevant question is whether consumers are likely to be con confused. Which you know, I have a view on that, but you know, the lower courts are supposed to take a look. Yes. No one is going to try to drink this dog toy. It's just not going to happen. Um, but on dilution, which is separate from infringement, the court found the lower court was wrong to basically conclude that every parody is necessarily non-commercial. Something can be a parody but still be commercial, um, especially because here Bad Spaniels allegedly misused the mark, that is the source identifier, right, like who made the product, rather than just say a reference to or a use of the name. And the opinion was written by Justice Kagan, pop culture maven, who included a reference to Aqua's Barbie Girl in um, the opinion announcement, including reciting the lyrics, quote, I'm a blonde bimbo girl in a fantasy world. Um, you know, I like the idea that she can have a little fun and that she and Justice Jackson and Justice Sotomayor get to smile and have something of a reprieve for a second. But um, that's all the opinions. As we said at the outset, we have 23 opinions for the court to crank out in a little more than two weeks. So rest up and hydrate because it will be a wild sprint. We also wanted to highlight some lower court opinions and other developments that seem to coincide with Pride Month. So happy Pride to all of you. And we're going to talk a little bit about some of the Pride landscape. So in a rare piece of good news, a Trump-appointed district court judge in Tennessee struck down that state's unprecedented laws banning drag shows in public or any place where children might see them. The court found the law was unconstitutional on First Amendment grounds, concluding that the law was unconstitutionally vague, Neil Gorsuch might have had a hand in that, <laughs> overbroad and had been passed, quote, for the impermissible purpose of chilling constitutionally protected speech, end quote. So, so this was a good, important win, but... You know, I don't think it should obscure the fact that the legal landscape this Pride Month is incredibly alarming, right? Even though the law at issue in this case Melissa was just talking about was the first of its kind, the Washington Post reports that 26 other similar laws have been introduced already this year targeting drag performance and performers. That same analysis counted 400 anti-transgender bills already introduced this year, up from 150 bills last year. Um, so this attack is fierce and widespread, and the legal victories are really important, but there is much, much more work to be done. And just because we are doing this at this live show, um, you know, like to note that as we were getting ready for the show to pump ourselves up, we watched the video of Anitra's and Marsha, Marsha, Marsha's lip sync to Boss Bitch because it's invigorating and filled with joy and do not fuck with drag queens. Like, just don't do it. Um, Don't be thieves of joy. And I wanted to shout out Strict Scrutiny listener Melissa Stewart, a recent law school graduate. Um, she is on this case, and we love hearing about and being able to celebrate the best listeners in the world doing incredible things. As we noted in our interview with Professor Joanna Schwartz a few months ago, there's a real need for civil rights lawyers, especially in places outside of DC, New York, California, and there are so many opportunities to do this work because there is so much work to be done. And don't wait to do it. You know, you can do it now. 
We should also note, since we're at Howard, that the NAACP Legal Defense Fund launched in 2021 its Marshall Motley Scholarship Program with the goal of training and seeding the next generation of civil rights lawyers doing work in the South. And we often think about the South as being a place where civil rights work focuses on race discrimination and voting, and it does. But there's also a lot of issues around LGBTQ rights that are going on in the South as well. And according to the Williams Institute at UCLA, a significant portion of the LGBTQ plus population are people of color, and even among that group, many reside in the South and are deeply, deeply impacted by the wave of anti-trans, anti-gay actions that's going on in this region. So it's terribly important work, and the NAACP Legal Defense Fund is doing really important work that we should support in seeding that cohort of civil rights lawyers. And to highlight another recent and successful challenge to one of these laws, uh, last week we got a decision from a Florida district court invalidating one of the provisions in Florida's anti-trans law, specifically the restrictions on providing affirming health care to transgender kids. Uh, the district court judge in that case noted, the elephant in the room should be noted at the outset, gender identity is real. The judge went on to say that, quote, the defendants say in effect that organizations were dominated by individuals who pursued good politics, not good medicine. If ever a pot called a kettle black, it is here. The statute and the rules were an exercise in politics, not good medicine, end quote. So these cases and the laws undergirding them are going to keep coming. If you want to stay up to date on what's going on, we wanted to highlight the work of Chris Geithner, who's doing a lot of the compiling and documenting of all of these attacks. He does it at a substat called Law Dork. You know you are one. It's okay. Um, he does amazing independent news and analysis, and it's always timely, always in-depth. Um, please follow him. He's doing great work. And because it's Pride, one final thing to highlight, which is an exchange that happened in a recent Fifth Circuit oral argument in a challenge to book banning and library restrictions. I'm not going to go into depth about the law or legal challenge in the case. I did want to highlight some comments from a friend of the show, Stanford Stormtrooper Kyle Duncan, who is a judge on the Fifth Circuit and was on the panel that heard the oral argument in this case. It is pride, and I'm going to use this as an excuse to twirl on Kyle Duncan. So again, some of the issues are just about the lawfulness of book restrictions, and Judge Duncan decided to offer his perspective on the kinds of books that libraries can obviously restrict. Lawn boy and gender queer, if they don't meet the definition of pornography, I don't know what does. Your Honor, with all due respect, the definition uh, for First Amendment purposes is not pornography. It's, of those it's, books? It's, it's obscenity. Um, okay, obscenity. Sorry, I misspoke. What were these obviously bannable books? One is called Lawn Boy. It's a semi-autobiographical coming-of-age story by Jonathan Evison that received the American Library Association's Alex Award for adult books that appeal to teen audiences. The other was Gender Queer, a graphic novel by Maya Kobabe about Kobabe's journey to adulthood and identification as non-binary. Okay, so why are these books banned? Well, first Judge Duncan says it's because they're pornography. And then he says, I misspoke, it's because they're obscene and therefore not protected by the First Amendment. Like, what? Yeah, so um, <laughs> does he not know what porn is? Um, or... <laughs> The difference between pornography and obscenity, you know, putting aside the pettiness for a second, you know, the pettiness of expecting that a judge would know something like the law, the fact that, you know, he thinks that these books code as porn and obscene to him is significant because it's almost like the existence of queer people, bisexual people, non-binary people is itself like obscene to him. And this relates to the argument in the 303 creative case from this term, which is still pending, we'll get a decision 
decision any day. They're one of the arguments that the lawyers representing the website designer are saying or seem to be making was that the very existence of queer people is expressive and threatening and justified service providers refusing to offer their services to same-sex persons. But more generally, like from listening to you know the clip, I just wonder like why are straight cis people so weird? Um, Queer people are not running around trying to ban young adult books about straight relationships. Like, when is the last time uh, queer people tried to ban a book because a boy and a girl kissed and a boy was like, yeah, I'm into it? You know, in Twilight, um, a teenage girl has sex and a whole ass baby with a vampire and is literally dying and nobody said anything. Um, and in Beauty and the Beast, a woman gets together with an actual beast. <laughs> And the gays are not coming for Twilight or Beauty and the Beast. I mean, the Barbie Girl song that Justice Kagan quoted has lyrics like, you can brush my hair, undress me everywhere, kiss me here, touch me there, hanky-panky, right? Hanky-panky, not triggering to Kyle Duncan for some reason. Uh, it feels like we need to declare a national emergency on straight people until we can figure out what the fuck is going on. And that's why I'm always posting. That was a reference to the Swifties in the room. <laughs> Sometimes we just let her go on. <laughs> it was the best. It was the best. All right, so some quick court culture before we end. Um, I just want to note, and my Bishpoo Cole would also like you to note, that Clarence Thomas got an extension on filing his financial disclosure form. Insert meaningful look here. <laughs> I don't know. I guess you got to categorize that private jet travel, super yacht travel, Galapagos trip, and private school tuition really accurately. Now you do it. It takes anyway. time. It takes, it takes time. time. Yeah. It takes time. And his requesting and obtaining an extension is, of course, another occasion to think about the harshness of his jurisprudence when it comes to deadlines, you know, including in capital cases. We previously mentioned, you know, Bowles versus Russell, where an out-of-time filing meant, you know, a challenge could not proceed, or Coleman versus Thompson, where an out-of-time appeal meant Again, someone who was sentenced to death could not proceed with their case. Or same thing with Maples versus Thomas. It seems that Alito has also gotten an extension on his filing. And here we are not sure why. Like, one theory, solidarity. One is... <laughs> <laughs> He's like auditioning. He wants a billionaire to notice that he's, he's, he's out there too. And he's open for business. Um, maybe just uh, I really don't care do you kind of message he's communicating. We're not really sure. Like the nosy bitch I am, I went through everyone's disclosure form. I did. Um, whoa, so much tea in that. I found out where they all traveled. I found out whose kids are going to college. I also found out that Justice Jackson received a $1,200 congratulatory flower arrangement from Oprah Winfrey. And <laughs> hashtag goals. Also, <laughs> Melissa is also open for flower deliveries. Um, but also, Oprah. how on brand the KBJ, of course. I bet you got hers in early. I mean, like, oh, obviously. Really? Yeah. I mean, like, how big are those flowers? Twelve hundred eighty flowers. Like, oh my god! I mean, that's like a Kanye and Kim level floral arrangement. Like, just like bathing her chambers in rose petals. Yes. I hope that's what happened. That's oh, what I hope. I'd love to see those pictures. Okay. All right. Now we're moving into some uncharted waters. <laughs> We have always said that our strict scrutiny listeners are the most creative, awesome, inventive audiences in the podcast biz. And you all keep proving it to us. Not only are you here at a live show in the middle of a workday, <laughs> you also send us the best homemade internet memes and other court-inspired gifts 
But we never, we never imagined that you would branch out into songwriting, but here we are. One of our faithful listeners, who I believe might be here today, Neil Johnson, sent us a little take that he did of Marvin Gaye's Sexual Healing. He's very clear to underscore that he loves Sexual Healing. It's a great song. He just wanted to write a little parody inspired by Neil Gorsuch's love of textualism. So I will not read the whole thing to you, but let me put a little flavor in your ear. Textual Healing by Neil Johnson. <laughs> oh, baby, now let's make law tonight. <laughs> Ooh, baby, I'm hot just like an oven. I need some standing. <laughs> Work with us. Whenever precedents are falling and my emotional stability is leaving me, there is something I can do. I can get on the phone and call you up, baby. And honey, I know you'll be there to relieve me. The footnotes you give to me will free me. If you don't know the thing you're dealing, oh, I can tell you, darling, that it's textual healing. Get up, get up, get up, get up. Let's make law tonight. <laughs> Neil, that was first rate um, and great for educating the public about so many court adjacent issues, including textualism, rewriting statutes from the bench, legislating from the bench, standing ethics. It really was all in there. And, and so I commend you. And I also recommend to the whole audience the Marvin Gaye Sexual Healing, which again is a great song and might make you pregnant. <laughs> textual healing almost certainly will not. <laughs> will not. <laughs> I think that's where we're going to have to leave it. We got some thank yous. So thank you first to the great Janae Nelson for joining us. It was such a pleasure to have her here. And enormous thanks to everyone at Howard Law for the incredible hospitality. The students that we met were incredible. Good luck to the bar studiers. Shout out to the Howard Law class of 2023. Uh, and Antoinette Oroco, who started law school in the pandemic along with her classmates. You all are amazing. You did it. And we can't wait to see what you do next. We also wanted to thank the many folks at Crooked for their hard work organizing this live show. Um, we also have a couple notes before we go. Crooked is raising money for Vote Save America's Fuck Bans, Leave Queer Kids Alone funds, um, supporting organizations on the ground in states that are banning care and targeting trans youth. Our original goal was $50,000, but because you all are so amazing and have crushed that already, we're now doubling it to $100,000. You can donate to either political impact organizations or tax-deductible nonprofits or both. Head to votesaveamerica.com slash fuckbans to learn more and donate today. And you can gear up for a summer of trials and tribulations with Strict Scrutiny merch for... I'm wearing some at the live show. Uh, for your closet, desk, and morning coffee, we have some brand new Strict Scrutiny merch featuring our very own, very classic logo. The new line includes crewnecks, t-shirts, a mug, and a nice notebook where you can jot down some novel legal theories. Or doodle Justice Alito in the tank he gets driven around in. Um, I'm definitely going to be drinking my coffee out of this mug, especially with the nonstop news from the court we've had lately. A huge coffee mug is crucial. Uh, check it all out at crooked.com slash store. 
And don't forget to follow us at Cricket Media on Instagram and Twitter for more original content, host takeovers, and other community events. And if you're new to Strict Scrutiny or you just really love this episode because it was awesome, make sure you rate and review us on Apple Podcasts and subscribe wherever you listen so you never miss an episode. Strict Scrutiny is a Crooked Media production, hosted and executive produced by Leah Littman, Melissa Murray, and me, Kate Shaw. Produced and edited by the one and only Melody Rowell. Melody, are you in this room? Yes. Will you stand up for a second? (laughs) Melody deserves all of that and more. Ashley Mizuo is our associate producer. Audio support from Kyle Seglin. Music by Eddie Cooper. Production support from Michael Martinez and Ari Schwartz. And digital support from Amelia Montooth. Luxury is meant to be livable. Discover the new leather collection at Ashley with premium quality leather sofas, recliners, and more, all built to last. No matter how many spills, scuffs, or pet-related mishaps come its way, the leather collection at Ashley is made with the durability you need for the whole family. Shop the new leather collection at Ashley and find chairs starting at $499.99 and sofas at $599.99. Ashley, for the love of home. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. With the Internet's best converting checkout, 36% better on average compared to other leading commerce platforms, Shopify helps you turn browsers into buyers. In fact, Shopify powers 10% of all e-commerce in the U.S. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash podcast free. All lowercase, shopify.com slash podcast free, shopify.com slash podcast free. (laughs) 